Welcome to the latest episode of Oxygen Starved, the podcast that brings you your ABCs, adventure, books, and conversations from 11,000 feet with your esteemed hosts, Dr. Stacy Adler of the Mono County Office of Education and Mr. Christopher Platt of the Mono County Free Library. Hey listeners, welcome back to another episode of the Oxygen Starved Podcast, where we give you adventure books and conversation from 11,000 feet, the very top of Mammoth Mountain. We're close to that right now. I'm sitting here in the Mammoth Lakes Library with my colleagues, my co-hosts. Stacy and our producer, Doug. Hi, Doug. Hey, Doug. Hey, guys. How's it going? Good. How are you this fine Friday afternoon? Cold, a little wet, wondering... I don't know. I was wondering if it's actually going to snow. Doesn't it? It feels like it does. It has that snowy kind of feel to it. And listeners are recording this on June 16th. And yeah, it's not pretty outside today. I'm sorry to say. It's an Eastern Sierra spring, right? Where it's 90 degrees one day and snowing the next. That It's so, it's so true. Keeps us on our toes. Yeah, definitely. Is that Time of year where you have to have your sweaters and sweatshirts and your short sleeves available at the same time. I feel like that's kind of the way it is all year round here. <laughs> like you never put anything away. <laughs> you know, it's Stace, it's also that time of year where, uh, like old TV seasons, the podcast takes a summer break. Yes. So this is our final episode for the for the season. For the season. It's now a, we're going into reruns. We're going into reruns, <laughs> possibly, and coming back in the fall. Yes. Yeah, yeah, and you know we we got some listener mail which is recently, nice. which we we're so happy about. So I want to shout out to listener Richard who sent us a lovely email and and thank you Richard for communicating with us and sharing with us that you are missing the adventure part of our podcast and you know we kind of took a back seat with those because COVID made it really difficult to get out and do things. Yeah. So, um, you know, but we hear you and we are going to do the best that we can to bring some adventures back to the podcast when we return in the fall. So thank you so much, Richard, and keep listening and keep sharing your thoughts with us. Yeah, we really do enjoy it when people give us feedback. Yeah, it's, it's great. And it's great to know we have more than one listener. <laughs> <laughs> more than your parents, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, so we, uh, uh, why am I stumbling over my words, Stace? We are at the books portion of our podcast. Yes. We have a great conversation lined up. Mm-hmm. Um, but let's chat about what we were going to read this week, right? We were we decided we would read thrillers. Thrillers. Yeah, I don't know why, but we just thought we hadn't read one in a while and why not? Pick it up and it's, check it out. It sounded good when we were mapping out our, our reading plan and reading calendar and, over coffee about six months exactly, ago. Exactly. And it got here a lot quicker. Than, <laughs> the time went a lot faster <laughs> that we were here. Oh, thrillers. Okay, let's go. So what did you read, Christopher? Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll do mine first. You know, I'm not a big thriller reader. I think we've chatted about yeah. this before. I do love thriller action movies. So I love all the James Bond movies, the Mission Impossible movies, and those Jason Bourne movies that Matt Damon was in in the early yeah. 2000s. I just love like all the action and, you know, I'm a sucker for that stuff. 
Uh, but I don't really read a whole lot of it in print. So mm-hmm. what I decided to do, instead of picking a new thriller, and there are a ton of them out yeah. there, I chose an older one, a classic one. So I went back and chose the original Born Identity book, the first Jason Bourne thriller written by Robert Ludlum back in 1980. Wow. Yeah. They've been around a long time. They have. Well, yeah. Yeah. Uh, it makes me feel old. Uh, yeah, good 40 years there. Um, you know, people may remember, a lot of our listeners will remember Robert Ludlum. He was a big thriller, spy thriller yeah, writer. always a bestseller. Yeah, back in the 70s and 80s and 90s. He died in 2001, but he was right there alongside John Le Carre and Tom Clancy. And mm-hmm. he wrote three books with the Jason Bourne character once it took off and became popular. And then after he died in 2001, as happens with many thriller writers where they have a key character that people get attached to, another author took over. Eric Van Lusbader Lusbader took over the character and he wrote a bunch of Jason Bourne books, probably because the movies were coming out around that same time. So there's a lot of interest and a lot of people who wanted to read about Jason Bourne. The movies are loosely based on the books. (laughs) Loosely in quotation? Looser than the shirt I'm wearing. Yeah, exactly. Bold (laughs) type. Um, The character names are about the same. Uh, And then in the last three years, he's actually handed the reins over to another author named Brian Freeman, who has authored already three Jason Bourne books just up into 2020. 22. So there's no no sign that the Jason Bourne books are going to stop anytime soon. Mm-hmm. So I figured, well, let's just go back to the original, original. the OG. Sure. So the <laughs> premise of the Bourne identity is this. A man wakes up in a doctor's home on the coast of France. He remembers nothing about himself, but he has sustained serious injuries, especially to his head. Uh, he... Through diligent practice with this doctor, he lives with this guy for a number of weeks and I think even months. He begins to piece together who he was and who he is, you know, through help with this doctor. His doctor's like, you know, you've had some facial surgery to kind of maybe mask who you were, some a nose job, a chin job, that kind of stuff. You have this kind of accent, you know, all this kind of stuff. Um, and one of the themes that the doctor imprints on him psychologically is that if he puts himself in stressful situ- situations, his brain's instinct will kick in and he'll learn more about himself. So this being a thriller... <laughs> The doc- Stress abounds. Yeah, exactly. Stress <laughs> abounds. The doctor actually kind of orchestrates a scenario where he goes out on a fishing boat with some other guys and whatever. And for whatever reason, an altercation happens. And it turns out Jason Bourne can fight hand-to-hand combat, right? So that's okay. just one example. And it kind of early on in the book, he's setting the stage for... You know, so so Jason this. Bourne is the guy that's had these physical yeah. changes to his face. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, and you don't know his name yet at this point okay. in the story. Uh, and at one point, you know, he the doctor pulls out of his hip a little microform chip that had been implanted under the skin. Right. You know, conspiracy theories. Oh yeah. This one has a bank account number of a bank in Zurich, and so. This guy decides who, that he needs to go to this bank in Zurich and oh, look into this account, what's in the safety deposit box, and maybe he'll learn who he is. But he has to get from the south of France to Zurich with practically no money. And so again, like he's using his brain instinct mm-hmm. to kick in and just relying on that. And he basically grifts and steals and cons his way from the south of France to Zurich and into this bank. Um, he finds, for whatever reason, he ends up at a hotel he knows he had stayed at in the past, and he uses the hotel clerk who says, oh, I welcome back, 
to fill out his hotel registration form and he peeks over and sees that his last name is Bourne. That's the first clue of who he okay. is. And then he actually does, does go to the bank. Yeah, does more memory come back to yeah, him? Yeah, it starts piecing okay. together. And then when he goes to the bank and opens the bank deposit box, I won't tell the listeners what's inside it, but he Suspense. does see something with his full name, which is Jason Charles Bourne. Okay. And so this things are then starting to piece together. It's also about this same time, because someone in the bank recognizes who he is, that these mysterious, shady, bad guys start showing up, shooting at him. <laughs> right? Because it's a spy thriller. Right. Of course. And so he now knows that not only is he like in possessive of a Zurich fortune, but there are people out to get him and he doesn't know why. So, you know, yeah. hijinks ensue. <laughs> um, he ends up, you know, coming across, uh, crossing the paths with a young uh, economics professor who's in town on a conference. She's, of course, very beautiful and very intriguing, but she he uses her as a human shield to kind of get away from these bad guys in an instance, kind of like almost kidnaps her in a way. Hmm. And again, like more action happens. I won't go into a Before whole lot of Before me that. too. Before me too. Yes. Yeah, it's okay. kind of, you know, you do kind of like raise your eyebrows when you're reading it a little bit. He It actually well, reads pretty well. You yeah. Know. I mean, has it, does it hold up? To a degree, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I almost. Um, but she ends up. I don't know that it's Stockholm syndrome, but she ends mm-hmm. up actually um, deciding she's going to help this guy out who's getting his memory back. Okay. And so you know, again, uh, little things that some people might remember from the movies that actually did carry over from the book. There's this large organization called Treadwell. He learns that he works for a company in the United States called Treadwell. Okay. It's 1980. He has no way of researching it except for calling <laughs> the operator in New York. And the operator's like, I don't see any company like, you know, blah, blah, blah. And so you're, as a reader yeah. in 2022, you're like, oh yeah, okay, that would be a little bit more difficult. But what that does is... Um, it kind of sets the stage for what the kind of thriller I actually do like, which is like the big behemoth inhuman thing that you're up against, against the, the little guy, the little guy. Right. Yeah. And it's kind of like, um, Alfred Hitchcock movies that are uh-huh. often set up that way, like North by Northwest right. with Cary Grant. Like he's, he's battling some unknown big thing yeah. and he can't understand why, you know, it's kind of that same, that same formula. Um, so, you know, as the book goes on, there's a lot of action. It's, it's very quickly paced. You know, mm-hmm. you're trying to understand, are the bad guys, are they the police as they're saying they are? Or are they the CIA? Or are they from this Treadwell organization? Um, the action moves from from Zurich to Paris. So it's all very kind of like atmospheric in that way. And then, you know, what I thought was interesting about this book, two things. Mm-hmm. He was inspired to write a book with a character who had amnesia based on an amnesia well, his own episode of amnesia. Wow. Temporary amnesia. He had a day where he lost 12 hours. And out of that, he's like, what would happen if you lost a lot more? And apparently this has happened in history. Um, So he used that as a premise. And then the other thing he used as a premise was Carlos the Jackal, who the three of us may remember being on the news back in the 1970s. He's a real guy. 
He was a Venezuelan terrorist who was funded by the KGB who would kill French spies. And he killed like 11 or 12 people. This is like in the 70s, 80s. Wow, okay. He was, I think, caught in the early 90s. He's actually still alive and in prison. But he, wow. he, he actually takes a couple of news articles, of real news articles about Carlos the Jackal and uses them as the preface to this spy okay. thriller. So Carlos keeps getting is, referred to as like, maybe he's the guy who... Is the, the big bad wolf of, of this, the, yeah, yeah. So you know, it all just kind of builds out. One of the things I really enjoyed about this book, apart from the action, is that by setting up this premise, this guy has had his memory wiped, mm-hmm. that he's relearning about himself. You, the reader, are relearning it with him. So yeah. you're getting to you're understand. discovering him along yeah. with, as he's discovering himself. exactly. So the, so Ludlum does a great job of building mm-hmm. character sympathy that way, right? Right. That's probably one reason so many people are hooked on Jason Bourne books is because they read this first one, and then you know psychologically you're brought along, you're brought along with him. Um, you know, the last thing I'll say about this, this was 1980. This was the era of, you know, the paperbacks on the racks at the grocery right. store checkout stands, yeah. right? And spy thrillers were not really thought of as all that great literature, <laughs> even though there was they're hugely right. popular. And there's some great ones written, including, you know, John Le Carre's classics. But my favorite review from when The Born Identity was first published, um, I'll just quote these lines from it. It's from Kirkus Reviews. Another dizzily preposterous Ludlum <laughs> comic strip full of hyperventilating characters, pell-mell intrigue, and barbarous prose. Showdowns, chases, and more exclamation points in italics than most writers use in a lifetime. <laughs> Shamelessly dumb entertainment in the pre-sold, proven Ludlum mold. Wow. Wow. Though, this is a reviewer just had no time for any, any kind uh- of... Apparently, and I, I wonder if this reviewer, having seen the success of the series, right. would go back and change, you know, any any part of that statement. Yeah, right. Because yeah. basically, you know, a million copies, million people proved him wrong. Right. It, oh so, yeah, for but sure. But I just thought it was fun. I just thought it was a fun fun review. So that was my thriller pick, Born Identity by Robert. Ludlum. It was fun. I actually do recommend it, even though it's kind of dated. Yeah. Well, it's fun to go back and revisit history. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Or, you know, the seventh grade, as it was for me. There you go. What about you, Stace? What thriller did you read? So I really like the psychological Mm -hmm. thrillers. You know, um, I do enjoy reading those quite a bit. And so the book that I chose is called The Last Time I Saw You. It's by Liv Constantine, who actually is two people. There's right. sisters who who write as Liv Constantine. And this is a it is fast paced. It definitely is a psychological thriller because you mm-hmm. you really you really don't see the twists and turns coming and right. um, you know, whereas your book has male protagonists. This is female protagonists, female driven. Mm -hmm. So you have Kate and Blair. They are ex-best friends from, they were best friends in their childhood. Um, Blair was kind of taken in by Kate's parents. And, you know, they were just inseparable all through high school. But then they have a falling out Mm. on the day of Kate's wedding. They go their separate ways. They don't, they lose touch with each other and but then Kate's mother is 
um, murdered. Okay. And she's this beloved figure, this, you know, pillar of society in, in the town. And she is brutally murdered. And Blair comes back to be there for, for Kate. And when the funeral happens and they, they kind of reconnect, and then Kate starts receiving these very strange texts mm. in the form of nursery rhymes that are intimating that she's going to be the next to die. Next victim. Yes. So that kind of sets up, I won't go any further into the plot than that. Right. Um, because then all the twists and turns, Kate, as she kind of starts to lose it. Okay. Um, all these twists and turns come about. So the, the, the story's told in alternating viewpoints. So every chapter has okay. a different, I really, I seem to really enjoy those books. I, feel like I say that every single time I talk about a book I read. But um, <laughs> yeah, so the they go back and forth between Kate and Blair's viewpoints. Kate's, Kate's chapters are more about what she is going through, where Kate's chapters kind of push, they drive the plot. Blair's? Blair's, yeah. yeah, where they're kind of, where she's kind of, well, what's going to happen next? And how do we, you know, how are we going to figure out who's doing this to Kate? You know, so she's kind of pushing the story forward. Um, are they sympathetic? I mean, they obviously they had them split up for a reason on the wedding day and then come back together. Yes. Is it, are they each sympathetic characters? They, they, are, they are both sympathetic characters for sure. Um, the one thing that might be off-putting to some people and I, I didn't bother me at all Mm -hmm. was, is they're both very, all the characters actually in, in this book are extremely wealthy. Mm. So, you know, these are people of means, you know, they can order the detectives around, they can buy whatever they need. You know, there's money is no object. And I suppose that some readers might kind of take an issue with that. I, didn't yeah. bother me at all. I yeah. didn't. I, to me, it didn't see. It seemed like this plot could have been told with middle class or even you mm-hmm. know low income people. Mm-hmm. You know, it didn't mm-hmm. really. It didn't. Didn't get in the matter, way. Yeah, it didn't get in the way at all. And it, I will say that as you know, towards the end, I'm like, I've got to figure out who is, what, <laughs> what's the resolution here? Who right. did, who's doing this and how's it going to stop? And it does get a little bit convoluted. Like when you're all finished with it and you think back to those last few chapters, it gets a little convoluted, but it's easily overlooked because you enjoy the ride. You enjoy the ride. Yeah, Totally. And, um, <laughs> it, it just, you know, at the end of the day, it's just a lot of fun. And, yeah. um, well, that's what these books are for. Yeah. Right? They, uh, Liv Constantine, they do a great job of telling the story. And this is the third of book yeah. of theirs that I've read. Um, they also wrote the last Mrs. Parrish, which I'm understanding is going to be a movie. Yeah. And um, The Wife Stalker, right. which I think was my favorite. I talked about on a you previous um, episode, and I think it's my favorite of, of all of their books. But this one was really enjoyable and just a kind of a, a fun escape. 
even though the ending was a little bit... A li- you're famous for judging endings. I do. So. Well, you know, it's all my eighth grade English teacher, Mr. Monroe's fault. And <laughs> um, because he he taught that was what he taught us to be critical of endings but yet i didn't i didn't i'm not critical i don't feel like this was a bad ending or mm-hmm. i don't yeah. feel like it was rushed at all like right. like they were just okay we need to end it now yeah. so we're going to do this it did have a a purpose yeah. you know for how they ended it and i read one review where the the reviewers like oh well yeah i saw kernels of this you know how it was going to end that they saw. No, they didn't. There's, <laughs> there, there are no kernels. It's like Agatha Christie. Suddenly something pops out of nowhere yeah, and I, everything resolves or. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Just that, what that. <laughs> no. So I, w- one last question. Yeah. Now this is the third live Constantine yes. book that you've read these sisters. And I enjoy reading books that are written by two people. There's a, a surprisingly great number of them out there. Yeah. Sometimes where they're both billed as authors mm-hmm. and sometimes through a pen name right. like Liv Constantine. Yep. Is it your sense that they each took a character and that's why they alternated the chapters or or do you think there was more cooperation? I think there was more cooperation. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Because, I mean, they had to make everything fit, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, I always liken books like this to... Um, Holes by Lewis Satchar, yeah. which is a kid's book, yeah. but where every single person is linked in some way, it's like you have to draw like a diagram. Mm-hmm. To, and I feel like this book was very much di- diagrammed yeah. where you couldn't take apart right. the story. They're so intertwined. Yeah. So I, I'm not re- I don't really think they, I'd be surprised if they each took a, a character. A yeah. yeah. Um, and the, you know, the two, Blair and Kate, they have a lot of similarities about them. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, they grew up together. They went right. to high school together. You know, so there there were quite a few similarities to them. So that's and they, their voices weren't that different. Yeah, does that make sense? Yeah, that that totally yeah. makes sense. So, so yeah, so that was um, the last time I saw you by Liv Constantine. So yeah, so, hope the readers will check it listeners will check it out yeah we'll put the titles on our show page and of course instagram so you can yes. you can find them yeah so. and we'll be right back ample oxygen is a basic requirement for human molecular metabolism welcome back listeners we have arrived at the conversation part of our podcast and we're so thrilled today to have with us the mayor pro tem of mammoth lakes mr john wentworth hi john hey john Hi. <laughs> Thanks for joining us today. Your busy schedule. It is beyond pleasurable to take a break out from that uh, so-called schedule to be here with you today. Oh, you're so kind. Well, you are such a busy guy. Mammoth Lakes Town Council member, Mayor Pro Tem, volunteer board member of the Mammoth Lakes Trails and Public Access Association. Foundation. But Foundation. Close, close sorry. Enough, yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. um, when do you breathe? <laughs> Um, well, I, I breathe like most uh, aquatic <laughs> types um, on a regular basis. Good. That's, yeah. that's <laughs> Spoken like an elected official, right? Stace? Absolutely. It takes one to know <laughs> one. I was 
<laughs> well, we are so happy to have you here today, and yeah. we thank you very much for making the time. So tell us, John, about how it is that you came to be here in Mono County and doing all of these wonderful things that you're doing. Well, I arrived in an automobile, as most people do. <laughs> most. Um, I would, just about everybody. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, uh, I'm a native of uh, the East Coast. Oh, okay. I was actually born in Medford, Oregon, but I grew up in the East Coast. Okay. And I worked in the motion picture business for a while in Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. And I learned how to ski in the East Coast. As on, a the, young, on the small East Coast mountains? Stowe. Yeah. Oh, Stowe. Oh, Beautiful. Stowe. Pretty big mountain. Pretty big Nice mountain. big mountain. Yeah. Uh, and, but then, of course, uh, I grew up in Washington, D.C. Okay. So I had to ski in Pennsylvania. Okay. Which I'm not saying anything bad about skiing in Pennsylvania, but it's, you know, it's kind of an acquired taste. <laughs> uh, that part of Pennsylvania is beautiful, but yeah, it's different. It's, yeah. Um, and, um, you know, I skied out west a couple times when mm -hmm. I was a kid, and I was like, wow, that's that's the real business out there. Yeah. Uh, but I, uh, yeah, I worked in the motion picture business for about almost 20 years. What, what did you do in... Uh, I was a, I did... As anybody does in the motion picture business, you do a lot of things. Yeah. But my consistent uh, work effort was with a uh, director named David Lynch. Oh, okay. And I worked with him. I was his assistant on Blue Velvet, and then I uh, uh, worked on all the Twin Peaks shows, and I worked as a co-producer of Mulholland Drive. So this gentleman sitting across from us, I know exactly what he's doing. And <laughs> I've sat in those shoes for uh, many hours, many weeks, many days. So Very cool. Yeah, and then uh, I would come up here skiing with friends, mm -hmm. and then at a certain point, um, at the confluence of digital technology starting to take over the motion picture business and the media mm -hmm. world, and a great-grandmother who died at 104 and left wow. me a little bit of money, and I came up and did a spec house in Mammoth, and I, boy, it was great being here in the winter, but once you stay through a summer, you don't leave. You don't want to leave, wanna yeah, leave. that's for go. sure. So uh, that was July fourth of twenty of two thousand. So wow. I've been here since then. Okay. Yeah. So oh, we've been. Wow. I've been here about that long too. There's a lot of people who came up here right around two thousand. Yep. I don't know what. I don't know what was in the in the water or on television or whatever it was. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it was the time, right? You know, new new century Y2K. time to yeah, yeah exactly millennial <laughs> time to move. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And and you know I think to the um, access, like technology access, yeah. was started becoming, it started to open things up a little bit more to allow people to come here but still be connected. Yeah, you know? I've got a story about that. Uh -oh. Okay. If you, well, yeah. Um, moved to Mammoth, beautiful place. I uh, got involved with a little uh, kerfuffle about a gate. Over on Ranch Road. Okay. Um, and that led to the founding of MLTP, the Mammoth Lakes Trails and Public Access Foundation. Okay. And we started, you know, doing things. And there was no internet in town at that point. Right. The only thing that was available was DSL. And yes. I had pretty decent DSL in my apartment. Um, and we needed some office space for the foundation. So we rented an apartment sort of across the away, mm -hmm. but I had to run a Cat5 cable from my apartment, <laughs> dig my own trench, uh, <laughs> my own 
uh, <laughs> you know, infrastructure <laughs> because you, because DSL is, it's related to distance. Right. And, uh, so yeah, we were early, uh, adopters of, of broadband <laughs> technology such as it were, but obviously digital 395 has changed everything. Oh yeah, oh, yeah absolutely. For sure. Yeah. Well, that's great. Well, can you tell us a little bit about the genesis of the Trail Association or Trail Foundation? I mean, it's 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 a big thing now. I think a lot of locals definitely know what it is. Right. Can you tell us how it came about? Yeah, um, I, uh, you know, my my I, I I'm a practicing backcountry skier, mm-hmm. and uh, I spent a lot of wonderful hours up in the Sherwins. Mm-hmm. And at some point, um, this is about 2005 or 2006. Uh, myself and others became aware of an effort to construct a private gate on a public road. Okay. And the town was okay with that, and they were going to vacate a public road to get this gate built uh, because of issues with backcountry skiers mm-hmm. coming into some of the neighbors out there. Mm. Yeah. And as I mentioned, I grew up on the East Coast. My mother's family's from Plymouth, Massachusetts. Mm-hmm. And we had a place there we go there in the summer times, and there was a a beautiful path that would go down by the house that would go down to the beach. Mm-hmm. People would come and go. Right. And I uh, asked my mother, uh, what is this all about? She said, well, that's a, that's a public trail. that has a public access easement. And that makes it possible for the people to go back and okay. forth to the beach. And when that made an impression on me. Mm-hmm. And then when we get up here and you have a town like this, it's completely surrounded by public lands, yeah. mm-hmm. building gates, you know, building, you can't go here, you can't go there kind of stuff. That right. kind of struck me wrong. So there was a uh, a deeply embedded, uh, somewhat Freudian impulse <laughs> to want to uh, 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 facilitate right. people being able to go to different places. And that that's where that happened. So we did a, we had a big public meeting and did a lot of stuff. And, uh, and the consensus of the community was, yeah, we need a, a, a nonprofit trails foundation here in Mammoth Lakes. And so it was implemented um, and formed back in 2006, 2007. And you can go to mltpa.org and see the whole whole history of things that happened since then. But we're very proud of having put together the updated trail system master plan. Uh, We then were involved in the campaign for Measure R to get that passed. Mm -hmm. Uh, We recruited the new uh, trails manager, Joel Rathjew, is here. Uh, All the signs that were put up in town that came out of a, a lot of partnered efforts with a lot of different people, but uh, it's a pretty exciting gig, and it continues on. No, it's amazing. I yeah. love the trail system here, and we should mention that where we're recording at the Mammoth Lakes Library is adjacent to part of the town trail, right. which then is just links you to so many places in our neighborhood and in the country around it. It's, it's amazing. It's an amazing resource. Well, and, it, and I appreciate it so much in the winter because I go cross-country skiing out at Shady Rest, and yeah. the, the trails for that out there are just, they're magnificent, and you can really escape and get away and... And it's, it's a big, and I mean, the opportunities of a town like this where mm-hmm. we're all surrounded by federal public lands and to get the agencies aligned, to get the various environmental processes aligned, to get the communities yeah. aligned, because the public, the visitors come up here, they don't know where the jurisdictions are. Exactly. Right. And and that's that's kind of the, that's the burden, I think, of communities like this is to be able to, you know, get those kinds of things worked out. So the experiences are seamless. Mm-hmm. That's so great. So the other part of your your work life, being mayor pro tem of Mammoth Lakes, what is it like to be a mayor of a small community like this? It's really exciting. Um, it's really rewarding, and it's really interesting. And this may be just because of 
who I am and growing up mm-hmm. in Washington D.C. and yeah, um, but it's really interesting and uh, the times we're living in and what we've seen. You know, democracy is a it's a uh, phenomenon that requires consistent and constant reinvestment and engagement yeah. by the citizens. And as someone reminded me not too long ago, you know, the veneer of civilization is thin. Uh, And that's something I've been carrying around with me a lot these days. So I think that any uh, opportunity for any of us to play a role in these kinds of uh, institutions and systems, it's, you know, where you are is where you are. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, pick it up and do what you can where you are. What's kind of the biggest issue right now facing the the council, would you say? Uh, Well, the most significant one is housing. Yeah. And um, an issue like housing... Everything tears from that, and uh, it really is at the center of the whole thing. If mm-hmm. you can't get the housing thing figured right. out, then you're going to be in real trouble. Uh, fortunately, the town of Mammoth Lakes has uh, significant and distinctive opportunities that differentiate us from other uh, resort communities, uh, primarily through how we're financed through TOT. Mm-hmm. Uh, we are a recreation-dependent, tourist-dependent economy, right. yeah. and the county, in its infinite wisdom, uh, when the town incorporated, uh, made sure that we we got all the TOT and they got right. the property tax. Okay, well, fine. It's worked out pretty well for Mammoth Lakes. Right. Uh, yeah. Because we can generate a lot of general fund money that we can use to supplement the grants we get from the state mm-hmm. to address things like the missing middle challenges so that we can right. have really have a community at the end of the day and not just a labor camp. Yeah, <laughs> You know, what strikes me about Mammoth Lakes as a community is that it feels very engaged. It feels like it, housing is one of the most important issues, as you've mentioned. It feels like everyone is is engaged in that conversation, to me, or maybe mm-hmm. just because we're in the library and there's a lot of conversation around it. But is that a sense that you have, that this is a real issue-engaged community? Or I, Well, I think, that, I think there's a very strong sense of community here. Mm. Um, but the culture... Whether this will change or not, I don't know. But the culture of government and the culture mm-hmm. of, of civic participation is changing a lot for reasons that are not unique to Mammoth Lakes, but have to do with the pandemic uh, and a lot of other issues yeah. that have really stressed the, the, the community and the social fabric right. in a lot of ways. And as we come out of this, uh, with the, you know, with the integration of technology into all aspects of social life, that's having profound changes. And I don't think yeah. we know exactly how all that's going to work out. But I think um, back to the issue of housing, if people can't afford to live here, who's showing up? Who's going to volunteer to be on the planning commission? Yeah. Who's yeah. going to who's willing to be willing to run right. for the town council? Who's mm-hmm. going to be on the rec commissions? Who's going to be you know, helping out in the schools? Yeah. Who's going to be doing this kind of stuff that democracies are so dependent upon? Right. And um we're going to have to see how that works out. And I think a key thing to really understand, which I've always felt, and I think we all feel living here, is that this place is unbelievably valuable. Um, it's valuable for just the essential reasons of being mm-hmm. alive. And it's was sort of a secret maybe before the pandemic. It's like, well, gee, if I could live in a place like that, maybe I will someday. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But the pandemic has forced those questions. Right. And people are now saying, I am going to live in a place like this. Yeah. Right. And a lot of people with a lot of means and a lot of money are saying, we're coming up and we're going to live there. Right. Which starts to really distort the value of housing, the availability yep. of housing, and it gets to those community issues underlying all that stuff. 
But again, luckily through this sustain, sustainable recreation tourism economy that we have here, we can produce the kind of general fund revenues that can help us try to mitigate that. Mm -hmm. But I think the jury's still out in terms of how successful we're going to be. It's interesting. I heard the phrase, you know, what you said kind of triggered it. I heard this phrase yesterday, the remote workers right. that have moved up here. And I had not heard that that mm -hmm. phrase. Are there that many people that well, have come I, up here? Can I tell you a little story about that? Please. Um, as I mentioned, I'm a uh, backcountry skiing mm -hmm. practitioner. Yes. Um, and for some family reasons, I've been living on the clock of the East Coast. So I go to bed early and get mm -hmm. up early kind of thing. And uh, this spring, there was a lot of really good skiing up at the Mammoth Crest. And so I would get up at, you know, four o'clock in the morning and get up there and, mm -hmm. uh, you know, and there was a storm and I was up on the Mammoth Crest up above TJ Bull. Uh -huh. I got up to the top about seven o'clock in the morning. Okay. And I figured, well, look at me. I'm the first guy <laughs> up here. I'm going to have this whole thing to myself. Right. Aren't I a special guy? <laughs> and I looked down through the mist and the clouds and there was a figure down below me. I'm like, well, gosh, there's somebody else up here. And then a couple <laughs> other figures appeared. And I, you know, dropped in with skiing down. I said, hey, how are you? Where are you from? Oh, we're from Mammoth. Oh, well, where do you work? Well, I work in San Francisco. I'm a, I'm a, you know, clinical neuropsychologist, psych, you know, psychiatric <laughs> computer programmer. Um, but I live in Mammoth Lakes and I, I work remotely. And, I've seen more and more instances mm -hmm. of meeting these people. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it's that's a, another part of this very significant economic realignment that we're going yeah. through. It's great to have a lot of remote workers in town. How are they going to be engaged with the community? How right. are they going right. to be part of the community? Are they just going to be living here and doing the fun stuff? Or are, are they going right. to be involved and engaged? And that's, again, that's... We have yet to see that. I think when, like, during the time when you and I came up here, it was almost an implicit expectation that you move up here, you're going to be involved. You yes. know, you, you almost have to get involved. And I don't know that that's the, still going to be the case, you know, we for don't these know. folks. I mean, and on the council, we're just, you know, we're dealing with the realities of having virtual meetings. Right. Mm -hmm. We meet... You know, we're meeting in public. I ran the uh, uh, Linda Salcedo, who's the, mm -hmm. the mayor. She mm -hmm. had a COVID exposure, so she didn't want to come into the council right. chambers last week. And so I ran the meeting, and we're still juggling uh, where pre-COVID you had one audience, right. which is the people that were in front of you. Now you have yeah. an audience in front of you and a right. whole other audience yep. that's in the cloud. Right. Yeah. And it's it's interesting. Yeah. It's d definitely a different dynamic. That's it's a very different sure. dynamic, and it's yeah. a... It could be very good for democracy, but I think we've seen like the promises of the internet and mm -hmm. the, so the tech, you know, technology evangelists. Well, I don't know if Mr. Zuckerberg really anticipated what you know the breadth of the human right. condition right. is, and the people are out there kind of thing. So it's I don't know. We'll have to see human nature. Definitely. You know, we've touched on a couple of themes that that I wanted to ping you about. You know, you talk about agency alignment to get some stuff done and also just, you know, more people coming up here, new types of people coming up here. And of course that also has an impact on the environment and the ecosystem around us. And one of the first meetings uh, we went to and we came back to the Eastern mm -hmm. Sierra a few years ago was a community meeting about the Eastern Sierra Sustainable Recreation Partnership. I think I got that right. Yeah, you did. And you were there and, uh, it just became a really fascinating process that we participated. It was a public 
participation kind of process, but I thought it was really fascinating and necessary. Can you tell us a little bit about what that is and sure. where it stands now? Sure. Um, California is has a unique relationship to the Western United States. Um, it sort of insists on being California. <laughs> um, despite the fact, you know, where we live, we're basin and range. Right. right. You know, we're... We got a lot more in common, maybe with you know Salt Lake City and yeah. Elko and Elino, mm-hmm. those little towns out there. Right. Um, and the state of California has never established an office of outdoor recreation, mm-hmm. which is an interesting fact. Colorado's got one, Utah, all these other places mm-hmm. do, where um, the the um, economic benefits and the social benefits of human beings on public lands managed by the federal government in these states is of uh, real importance to those states. And California, uh, a couple of years ago, had three different bites at the apple. And it failed each time hmm. um, for a variety of different sort of political kinds of reasons. But it was clear that in a region like this, where recreation, not just in Mammoth, but in the entire region, you know, we, our base population is, what, 35,000 people? Right. Mm-hmm. And the visitor population, four, seven million? Um, yeah. Uh, it's, I mean, that's what's going on up here. Yeah. And there are other collaboratives and partnerships across the country that do similar things that basically bring all the public agencies mm-hmm. together so they can start talking to each other. Yeah. What are you doing? And right. What's happening? And so we pulled this thing together uh, with some support from the Washington Office of the Forest Service uh, back Right, pretty much right before COVID, mm. and it was good, mm-hmm. interesting. But then COVID hits, right? And then to watch how the federal agencies were responding by mandates coming from Washington, what was happening with the counties, what was happening mm-hmm. right. with the state, it was, the timing of it was fortuitous. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that led to a grant application that MOTPA wrote to the Sierra Nevada Conservancy to do the Sustainable Recreation and Tourism Initiative, mm-hmm. um, working with the ESSRP to identify a series of projects, um, and um, with what's going on in the state of California right now, you know, the largest budget surplus mm-hmm. in the history of this state and of any state in the history of the United States, right. um, there's a lot of money. And the state is finally starting to organize itself around regional mm-hmm. you know, regional geographies. There's a yeah. the surf program, which I'm sure you're aware mm-hmm. of. And so that collaborative, that partnership, I think is going to potentially serve us very well as we go forward. Because we have a regional identity. We have a regional uh, – we're organized in a regional basis, which a lot of the other uh, regions in the state aren't, re- aren't organized mm-hmm. that way. And um, so, again, fortuitously, it could open us up to a lot of opportunities. Well, I think Sounds it's pretty great. exciting. Yeah. There's some real tangible projects coming out of it. And uh, Yeah, there's a there's a project called the Towns of Trails project that would link <laughs> um all of the communities in the eastern Sierra to the public lands and to each other. Yep. And this is very similar to work that's going with the Sierra Buttes Trails uh stewardship up north. Um MLTPA is now running a project called Calrec Vision. Uh, where we're producing deliverables for the Wildfire Resilience Task Force. Nice. That will actually produce a joint strategy for sustainable recreation for the entire state of California. That's great. And I breathe in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> and I've, I've, I think I've breathed. Is that the right word? Breathed. I yeah. think I've br- breathed, breathed <laughs> here in this room. But um, <laughs> it has been an exceptionally busy time for sure. Yeah, that sounds so great yeah. though. And so beneficial to all of us who live here. 
Yeah, it should be. Yeah. But again, it, it, it goes back to those things we were talking about earlier, civic engagement, community right. engagement. And one of the things, uh, we did a project where the Inyo National Forest was updating their management plan, and we ran something called the Eastern Sierra Recreation Collaborative, where we got people from all over the region just to get involved in yeah. the planning process. Yeah. A lot of other parts of the state, rural areas, things can get really contentious. They can mm-hmm. get really difficult. Yeah. People can get, this is before COVID, people can get really, you know, kind of problematic. And there's there's just never that vibe in the Eastern Sierra. You know, if you yeah. if you tell people what's happening, bring folks together, we're gonna work on something together, people come together and 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 we just, you know, figure things out. Right. Which is uh, one of the one of the really many compelling reasons about being in this region and working in this region. Yeah. And that there are even opportunities for people to pull a chair up to the table and contribute yeah. is is meaningful. It creates a better relationship, I think. Everybody can be heard. Exactly. Yeah. So you are a busy person. We just talked about the times you get to breathe. Uh, John, what do you do when you're not city counseling and all this? You go outside. I go outside. And aside from ski? I ski, I hike, I mountain bike. Um, I don't climb. I swim. Yeah. Uh, that's about it. So is, so is winter still your favorite time of to be here, or are you have you been a convert to the summer? I look. I look forward to every season. Yeah. yeah, I get through one, but I have to. I have to finish out that season properly. Of course. So that I can then move on to the next. Get one. all your activity in <laughs> yeah. and take advantage of every inch of snow that's there. <laughs> Last weekend, I I went up to um, you know Kness in that area up in there. It's over, man. What are you doing? There's no snow. Come on, hang them up. <laughs> Do something else. Well, I think there's, you know. And um, had just a, spe- a spectacular day. Skied up on the Kness Glacier. Nice. That's brilliant. Came, you know, came down, arrived, got off the snow in the in the basin there, mm-hmm. and dropped my gear and was preparing for my uh, my dip. You know, yeah. mm-hmm. my push-ups in the creek. <laughs> <laughs> and as, as I was getting ready, you know, taking my clothes off, and then uh-huh. 25 people came walking up the trail. And uh, it, it, what's so interesting to me is when the Tioga Road opens, yeah. the Bay Area comes Come, Oh, here. yeah. They do. And where's, it, where's LA? Where's Southern California? They're just never around. But the Bay Area, man, oh, they come. Oh, yeah. And they, I, I really had a very interesting experience because I, I really – to some degree, he came to understand what it's like to be a zoo animal. <laughs> uh, what are, <laughs> skis? What are you? <laughs> oh, what? You know? Okay, and I answered every every question and just just yeah. kept taking my clothes off and said. But I think what's unique to living in this place is, uh, I'm on this side. Yeah, yeah. We're on the nature side, right? That's where yep. we live. Yeah, we're of this. And you guys are from, you know, asphalt and concrete and other things. And right. You know, you feel for them, but it's a, it's an interesting thing. But it's so, okay, I'm not going to ski this weekend because, you know. Yeah. Um, so I'll start hiking and then just, but then, hey, fall's going to come. I know. Uh, right. Uh, right. And then the first snows are going to come and then what? And I, I'm pretty convinced that next year uh, we're going to get a lot of snow. I hope so. I hope so. I really I hope have so. this feeling. It was a disappointing you know, it start winters seem to start out so great this year. Yeah. And it 
But he was like, but he was a La Nina thing. It was like yeah. everything was just north, right? You know, and like what Colorado got two feet of snow right. a couple of weeks ago, Montana, you know, all that stuff. All it needs to do is just the, it just, just move drop a little, a little south. Bit. <laughs> yeah, I think I think we're due. Well, I, I'm I'm looking. I look forward to the summer because I love to hike and I love to paddleboard, right. mm. and that's kind of my wheelhouse. I mean, I find things to do in the winter. Well, that's good. But that's uh, good. Yeah, happy for you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm I'm hoping it's kind of blustery day here today yeah. for June, middle of June. So. And there's always, you know, John Ditley and. You know, ice skating and yeah, there you go. Yeah. I mean, there's so it's just it, I, it, it's always good. Well, the cross country skiing is pretty cross country yep. amazing here. Yep. So I'll stick to I'll stay off the mountain. I'll stay on the trail. <laughs> that's where you. That's where your path is. Totally. So, John, we always ask our guests, "What are you reading now?" Okay, so um, things have been busy. Yes. So I tend to read a lot of public documents. Um, Someone's got to. Yeah, that's well, right. Uh, you know, and the state of California has been prolific in the last six months. Yep. Oh, yeah. 30 by 30 documents, yeah. climate change documents, all this stuff. Yeah. So I consume a lot of that. Um, I have been uh, listening to um, poetry. Uh, especially from a singer from the night he's still alive, but he was very active in the in the nineteen sixties. And who is that? Uh, a gentleman named Bob Dylan. Ah, oh, okay. <laughs> and I've go- been going back and revisiting records like "Bringing It All Back Home" mm-hmm. and "Blonde on Blonde" and the times they are changing and all this. I'm really finding that those lyrics um, and that poetry really resonates in this time. I mean, those, that was all written in a time of enormous social change yes. yeah. and social chaos. Yeah. And that, it really resonates uh, for me. With, going back to the public documents a little yeah. bit, is there is there any particular document that you've read recently that has completely taken you by surprise? I think... Um, you know the aggregation of the documents that are coming out of the state are are uh, they're surprising mm-hmm. in the sense of the ambition of what the state is trying to do, right. the lack of capacity they have to actually pull it off, yeah. <laughs> and the amount of money that's behind all of it. Yeah. yeah, and you put all those things together, and it's okay. This is a moment. Yeah. Um, a bit audacious. It's it's quite audacious. Yeah. But I'm very, I, I'm not a native Californian, but I'm very uh, happy and proud and somewhat relieved to be living in the state. Yeah. Um, and it's it's quite a difference. I've been dealing with some family issues back east and you go to other states and there there's none of that. Yeah. And, and it's, it's very true in the western states where, you know, again, back before COVID, Mr. Uh, Mr. Trump was the president. Um, and they're trying to, you know, Colorado's trying to deal with climate change issues and they don't, there's no state leadership on that. Right. The only thing mm-hmm. that they are dealing with is what's coming out of the federal government. Right. 
And they're looking at California and they say, Mike, you know, look at what you guys are doing out there. Yeah. We want to be a part of that. And so this is a lot of policy that's exportable. There's mm-hmm. a lot of models that are exportable. Right. Uh, if we could just get the state of California to take outdoor recreation um, seriously and, you know, really integrate it into what they're doing. Mm-hmm. But we're working on that. This this CalRec Vision project is we're going to produce a joint strategy for sustainable outdoor recreation for the entire state. That's, that's great. great. And that's that's a step. Wonderful. It's a major step. Mm-hmm. I'm just going to Go I'm going to circle back to Bob Dylan for a moment mm-hmm. and just kind of remind our listeners we've kind of touched on this in previous episodes. Mm-hmm. One of the reasons I read a lot of historical fiction, John, and one of the reasons I do so is I think we understand the present really well when we understand our past. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. And the people who've been through it before and uh you know because everything does come go around and come back again and yeah. I think, you know, artists are like Bob Dylan and others who really contributed at pivotal moments of change in society, they're everlasting for a reason, mm-hmm. right? And in a way, coming back to them is not just understanding our past and our present better, but it's a almost a form of therapy and grounding as much as anything, right? I, I would I would agree with you on the grounding part. I'm not sure about the therapy. <laughs> 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 All right, you may you may have other things that you do for therapy. Okay. Uh, yeah, I go outside. Yeah, there you go. Mm-hmm. Well, so in this place, when you go outside, you know, living here, it it is therapeutic to just oh. take a moment and <sighs> look around and take a deep breath, and it just. I think that's why so many people, when they come here for the first time, don't leave. Yeah, right. <laughs> because. The, the therapeutic nature of the mountains and the beauty that's around us. Think of all those people who were just traipsing through the mountains last week and they ran into a guy who was taking his clothes off next to a creek. <laughs> right. Two of them may decide to relocate that's because of that. Well, I took one of them, uh, his teenage daughter, well, how do you get up there? Well, yeah. you leave skins and you put the bottom of your skis. Right. What? Really? You can do that? So, you know. Yeah. Everybody learns. Yeah. Well, John, this has been delightful having you here today, and we appreciate your yeah. time so much. And we wish you the best and can't wait to hear more about what's happening and come back and hang out with us again sometime. Right. I shall. It's been okay. absolutely my pleasure. Great. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks. Oh, and thank you, listeners. <laughs> I was just reminded, uh, since we're doing this in person, the cues are all different. Uh, thank you <laughs> listeners for joining another episode of the oxygen starved podcast. We will link to a lot of these websites and resources where you can learn more about what John was talking about, as well as the books we just talked about on our show page, oxygenstarvedpodcast.com. Of course, we're available on all major podcast platforms. Follow us on Instagram O2 Starved or Facebook and leave your comments, your your questions. We enjoy getting them as we have recently. And uh, in the meantime, go find something good to read and get outside. Take care. We'll see you soon. Thanks for joining us here for Oxygen Star. Our outro music, Iron Bacon, is composed and performed by Kevin McLeod. In Competech.com, Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0 license.